good to be here with you this morning. We had a, a bit of a technology crisis this morning, again. You know, what's new? Seems like uh, Sunday, all week things work great, and then Sunday morning, it's like uh, the electricity won't even work in the building. It's just funny how that works. Um, let me encourage you, we are, we are going to be reading a big chunk from Matthew 23. However, before you get too excited and flip there, we have three little passages we're going to hit. Now, you can, you can flip to Matthew 23 ahead of time if you want. The, the rest of the passages are going to be up on the screen, so you can follow along, or you can just get ready as fast as you can, because we're going to bounce around in those three real, real quick this morning before we actually deal with our main passage. Uh, and, and actually, the strange thing about this morning, at least strange for me, is this Matthew 23. We're going to read the whole chapter, so it's 39 verses, uh, and I'm not going to exegete any of them. It's really just to support exactly the idea of what we're going to talk about, and we're going to show what Jesus says and, and, and really just show that this is not a new problem, but that Jesus had to deal with this problem as well. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, what we've been doing all summer is going through these very unique questions that people have asked, some of them being more kind of theological in nature, some of them might be about a, a passage or an idea um, in Scripture. This one is not. This one is a question of cultural significance, something that we are all uh, wrestling through here in this unique Canadian culture that we find ourselves in. And, and it's a hard, hard question uh, first of all, I'm not going to answer it again. I feel like I say that every week. Maybe we'll just stop asking questions because I don't really answer them. Um, I, I'm not qualified to answer this type of question. And it's far too complicated and multifaceted to think that in, in if I'm being honest, 30 to 40 minutes. I was going to say 20 minutes, but we know that's not true. Uh, in about 30 to 40 minutes that we're going to find any kind of resolution on this, we're not. What we're going to do is we're going to start to think, I hope, more biblically about the issue. And then I hope that you go home and I hope you do some research and you do some consideration, some prayer, some, some focus on what is your role, how should you respond uh, to this. The question that came was from a fella in our church who, who works with um, somebody who is part of one of the residential school systems where a lot of bodies were found. And he wrote to me in this email, and it's a, it's a very long, well-worded, well-thought-through email. And basically, he was sharing how he had his you know, assumptions and ideas of this problem until he met and knew and cared for somebody that grew up in one of these schools. And as these as the information was coming out, and as more bodies were being found, and of course we know that, that Kamloops was just the beginning. And as more and more started to happen, as we uncovered more, as we learned more, and, and the crazy part is, how did we forget such a short time ago these things occurred? And this, this man who wrote this question, he says, as I listened to my friend, I was welling up with compassion and empathy for the suffering and the hurt and the difficulty that he had gone through. And suddenly, he wasn't able to say very much wasn't able to give his opinions. And as the email unfolds, really what we're going to address is the final sentence that he makes in this email, and he says this, is how do we as Christians, 
How do we show hope and purpose and meaning and show that Jesus is the answer when in this individual's mind, all of this happened because of religion? All of it happened because of the church. All of it was done in the name of Jesus. Now, I would argue it was done very falsely in the name of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But that does raise a very difficult and challenging question is when people do things in the name of Jesus or in the name of religion that have nothing to do with Jesus or doesn't represent God, that doesn't mean the hurt and the pain and the suffering all of a sudden goes away. That doesn't mean that that person who that was said in the name of, that somehow they go, oh, well, that, that, that's not reality. They, they don't know how to do that. All they've been told, things like, you're not good enough. Your culture is irrelevant. You need to be replaced. This is how you should think. God doesn't love you. He would love you if. And, and all of these confusing things get brought in. And then how do we then, as Christians who believe that Jesus is the only way, how do we even enter into conversation with someone saying, Jesus is the only way, even though what you have gone through. So that's what I want to try and deal with this morning. Uh, unfortunately, history not just for our culture. History for the whole world is a very messy thing. Mankind is particularly violent, and we desire to conquer other people no matter the cost. That's what history teaches us. And we fight, and we murder, and we do any and everything possible for us to get our way at the cost of everybody else, and we claim that somehow it was the name of a nation or a cause or some kind of a motive that justifies the ends. But of course, what inevitably happens is we look back on those moments and we go, how could we ever have thought this was okay or that this was right? As I was doing some research in, in this overall theme, I came across this, and, and some of you may have seen this before, and some of you may be shocked by this. Recently, there was a survey conducted over 1,000 people between the ages of 18 and 39 in all 50 U.S. states. The results of that survey showed that nearly one-third of those people believe that the Holocaust never actually happened, that it's not history. How do we deal with problems like this in our history when the number one or, 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 a, or a, a big group of people go, I don't like it, didn't happen. It's all conspiracy. It's all some kind of fabrication of people's imaginations so that, and, and you can fill in the blank however you want to. I don't want to get too convoluted in this. The point being is that history is there for us to look at and to learn from, not to try and pretend it didn't happen. And I think all of us in our lives, we look back and we go, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have acted that way at that time. But if we don't learn from those things and pretend they never happened, what's going to prevent us from making the same mistakes over and over again? So we need to learn. We need to learn in this moment, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to answer the questions that people have in regards to this? How can I share Jesus with someone when they view Jesus as the very problem that came in the first place? Again, I'm not going to answer that question sufficiently this morning. I'm going to try my best to create a biblical framework for how to enter into that conversation, and then we will go from there. Now, now of course, this is designed in the sense of dealing with the specific issue of those affected by the residential school system, but this has way more application than that. How many people have been told something, or, or somebody came to them and said, God told me this is going to happen, and then that thing hasn't happened? 
And then that person has been, well, I don't believe God then. God can't be real because he said this. This is what we're going to deal with. So the first place, first place we need to start is uh, an embarrassingly obvious place we need to acknowledge that people have been hurt and that we will never understand the suffering and the pain of the individuals that have gone through some of these things. For us to sit down with those who have been affected by the residential school problem and pretend that we understand somehow because and then we give our example of the suffering that we've gone through, that never helps and it never works. We simply need to step back and recognize this, this happened, and we are deeply sorry for it. Now again, this is, not, this is the unique challenge in front of us in our culture right now, but we're fooling ourselves if we don't think there's all kinds of red marks back further other issues that we need to deal with this. So we as, in Banff Park Church, I say this a lot, we hold everything in accordance with what the scriptures teach because the word of God is where we create, or where we set our standards, what it says to us. And so when we deal with this question of this awful atrocity was done in the name of Jesus, well, we need to go to scripture and say, is this consistent with scripture? If it's not, we have a different issue where we need to address, we need to deal with. What we always want to say is that this is not based on my opinion. This is not based on what I think should happen. This is based on what God has already spoken. This gives us a place, a a firm foundation where we can stand and we can say, it's not me who thinks this, it's God who has already said this. And So this is where I stand and this is where I can stand confidently. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Deuteronomy 18.20, we're going to start on a real tough verse. Deuteronomy 18.20, God writes this for us. He says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. In other words, this, when you speak on behalf of God, it is deeply meaningful. Like I I cannot overstate this is when you claim to be speaking on behalf of God, you better be certain that God has already said that. So much damage can be done in this sense. Now, I'm not suggesting, right? This is Old Testament. This is dealing with a specific time, specific thing. I'm not suggesting that if somebody comes to you and says, God told me this and it didn't happen, we're supposed to kill them. Don't misunderstand that. What God's saying here is it's that serious. It's that important that we represent God well. There's a verse that I've said often in 2 Corinthians 5.20. It says this, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So if you are a follower of Christ, you are his ambassador, which means you are his representative, which means you better know who you are representing before you speak on his behalf. That's why the word of God exists. That's why we've been given it, so that we can study and that we can know here's who God, here's what he's like, and here's his purposes for our lives. Here's what he's calling us to do. Here's how much he loves us. Here's the story of Jesus showing us the depth of God's love for us and his plans and his purposes. So that's where we go, and that's where we study. You know, when we step out into the world and we claim that we are Christians, then everything that we do and everything that we say does not represent us, but it represents another. And so we have to be aware of that. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. And somebody asked this question based on last week's sermon uh, from Matthew 7. We're going to deal with what does it mean when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven's perfect. We're going to deal with that. But the spoiler alert for this morning is you won't be perfect. So you'll just have to deal with that internally until next week or the week after, whenever we get there. The issue is not I have to represent God so good that I can never make a mistake. It's just not reality. But I do think that when we screw up, when we make mistakes, when we sin against others, when we sin against God, the way in which we can respond in humility and grace will speak so loudly to the world around us. To say, I understand that I, may, I, may, I screwed up here. I understand that I claimed something and then I didn't live that way. And then we can repent of that and we can ask for forgiveness of those that we have wronged. We start to live authentically. And people respect authenticity. What they don't respect is hypocrisy. And nobody does. Right? People who say one thing and do another, nobody likes that. And so we need to be aware. We do represent Christ, and so we need to know what Christ is like. Is, is I don't have the authority, you know, let's say I say something crazy and I say, I speak on behalf of all guitarists. Well, what do you think about the other guitarists are going to think about what I just said? Some might agree. Some will disagree. Some will think I'm crazy. Right? What gives me the authority to say I speak on behalf of an entire group? So this is the problem where people have said we've done things in the name of Jesus, but have they? Or are they just claiming to do things in the name of Jesus? That's why we need to understand the word of God. That's why we need to study it and see what it says for us. So firstly, we need to acknowledge the hurt and the suffering that was caused Not make excuses for it, but simply sit with them, let them share their story, let them hurt, and apologize that that ever took place. Here's one thing we're really not good at. I don't want to apologize if it wasn't directly my fault. Right? That was somebody else's fault, not mine. What does that help? Never helps anything. I'm not apologizing. I don't have the authority to apologize on behalf of somebody else, but I do have the authority to apologize that that person went through their pain and suffering. And I'm saying to them, I'm sorry that you have endured what you have. It's not right. It's not just. It's not even biblical. Second thing that we need to do then, after we acknowledge the hurt, after we acknowledge what happened to them was not just and not right, We need to show them that Jesus desperately loves them. Right? Now, here's the thing. It's too often Christians have been seen in the light of trying to convince others we're right, they're wrong, and that's what we care about. That argument never goes well. It it never works. When we go to somebody and be like, let me tell you all the reasons why you're wrong, immediately a wall of uh, defensiveness goes up. Their ears shut off. And, And I don't mean pointing at other people, we do the same thing. Somebody comes to you and says, I think you're wrong, and here's why. We don't immediately go, oh, I'd love to hear this. Explain to me why I'm so foolish. Right? We, we don't like that. And so we need to understand that, and we need to go, this is not about fighting for what's right and what's wrong, but when they say, here's what happened to me, and it was done in the name of Jesus, we need to apologize, we need to hurt with them, we need to understand their suffering from their perspective, and then we need to show them that that was done 
while claiming to be in the name of Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Bible is actually talked about very differently. And he loves you desperately. Every, and I, I know I've said this so much in the last few months, but every single one of us has been created in the image of God and we're loved desperately. Every single person. No matter how they're living, no matter what they think, no matter their ideology, no matter their theology, no matter any of that, God loves them desperately because he's created them and he wants to be in relationship with them. And so that means we ought to show them respect and care because God loves them. So we need to remind people of that. Cultures are different. People see the world differently. People respond differently in our culture, we're really big on efficiency and money. And we look at other cultures and we go, you're not very efficient. And so if you worked like this, you would make more money and so you would be happier. Anybody find that to be true? Right? And yet we buy into that. We work hours and hours and hours a week and, and we sacrifice all these other things in this mindset that if I get enough, then one day it'll all work itself out. You know what I've found? is that most people when they retire, if I end up having conversations with them, they talk to me not about all the joys they're going to have, but all the the regrets about the things that they wish they would have done differently. It's a reality. Instead of looking forward to what might one day happen, let's look at what God has given us right now. The people in our lives that we're meant to care for and to love and to nurture. Rather than looking so far ahead. We need to show them not only that God loves you, but that we love you too. 1 John 4, 20-22 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's a command. Love him. Does that mean correct everything that you think is wrong about how he does things? Right? I, I used this example, and I used it a few weeks ago, but forgive me, it's just such a good example, is I remember going to Greece, being there, and we were doing some little renovation things, and we went to get paint, and we bought paint, and then we asked where the paint brushes were, and they said at the paintbrush store. And I'm thinking, like, where's Walmart? Right? Like, everything should be in one building to make my life easier. But that's not how they think. They think that family, they sell paintbrushes. If we start selling paintbrushes, we are actually disrespecting that family. So we're going to let them sell it and only them. Because we care more about them than we do about money, efficiency, all those other things. I'm not trying to argue which is right or which is wrong. I'm trying to show you that people view things differently. So we need to show them we love you. We're not just here to try and correct all the things that you view that are wrong. We want to show you that God loves you. We want to show you that we love you. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are, a child of God, created in his image. On the flip side, here's the thing we shouldn't do. What we shouldn't do is we shouldn't step back and we shouldn't say, hang on, I had nothing to do with that. That was somebody else and start playing the name game or the blame game, excuse me. And we can say, you know what, uh, that, that had nothing to do with us. That was predominantly, that was the Catholic Church, so you can be mad at them. Well, first of all, that's really unhelpful. Secondly, do you really think that all Catholics in such a diverse group all believe that that was wrong or that that was right? 
at our ministerial, every week we've been talking about this issue for a long time. And I can promise you this, Father Dan, who's our, uh, our local Roman Catholic guy, is uh, deeply grieved and hurt and saddened and has had far more conversation about this than I will because the nature of it, he's from the Catholic Church, and the, the presumption is Catholic's fault. And if we play the blame game and say it's not our fault, it's their fault, do we see that we're doing the exact same logic that we're claiming we shouldn't do? Blaming a group of people for something? It's a very diverse group. And then there's the reality that there were also some Anglicans, there were also some Presbyterians, there was also a Baptist church that was in charge of a residential school. So we can't play the blame game. It doesn't work. We need to step back from that and we need to recognize something else too, is that do we really think somebody who doesn't have a good understanding of God walks past our church and they go, oh, that's the AGC church and they know exactly what we believe and what we teach and what we think versus something very different. Simple reality is this. We have a Mormon church right there. We have a AGC church right here. We basically share a parking lot. We do not believe the same things. But does the average person walking by know that? No. In fact, I've had this question, why is there a church there and a church here? Aren't you guys the same thing? Right? That's the assumption people see and make, and understandably so. If they don't know who God is, don't know Scripture, don't, shouldn't surprise us. So the blame game doesn't work. So we need to step back. We need to go, you're allowed to hurt. You're allowed to feel that you wait the way that you feel. We need to apologize on behalf of what they went through. We need to hurt with them. We need to then show them that God loves them, that we love them. And then, and then we enter into this idea of, now let me show you who the Jesus of the Bible really is. Then we need to become ambassadors of Jesus the way that he has revealed himself to us. The problem is, and I just alluded to this, is the problem is that Christians get painted with one brush. And it's very unfortunate, but it is a little bit reality. There are churches all over the world that say and believe things that go completely against what the Bible does, but we get lumped in together with them. And we can say, no, 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 that has nothing to do with me. And we can argue that, or we can enter into the mess of that convoluted confusion. We can enter into that with them, and we can let them ask questions without trying to correct them, but to then show them, oh, here's, here's what the Bible actually says. Here's what Jesus is actually like. And, and again, then we go, I'm sorry that somebody said this, but here's why that's not correct. But we can only do that if we actually know what the Bible says. Because if we say to someone, that person, they told you this in the name of Jesus and that's wrong, well, then they're going to ask this question, what gives you the right to say what's right, but not them? Here's the thing. The only reason we can do that is because we're not creating any new thoughts. We're just saying what the Bible already says. We're saying this is how God has revealed himself to be. This is not my thought. This is not revelation that's been given to me and only to me and I'm so wise and so, no, it's about here. Finally, Matthew 23. The reason we're going to read this is because what I'm trying to show us is that this is not a new problem. This is a problem that has existed right from the beginning. People who misrepresent Jesus, and sometimes on a very large scale. All history has black marks of people who did things that were horrible in the name of some cause that wasn't justifiable. Well, in the Old Testament, I said this last week, the Old Testament is this story leading to who? 
Jesus. So you would think that the Jewish people in particular would have been ready for their Messiah to come and understand who he was, see the prophecies being fulfilled, and go, okay, this is it. But they didn't get it because Jesus taught things that they went, I don't think that's right, because they misunderstood and they misrepresented God. And so Jesus then, for the majority of his ministry, you have kind of two ways of looking at it. He is very gracious, slow to anger with those who don't know him with those who don't know anything about God, with those who have just a lack of understanding. But for those who claim to be teachers of the law or of the Old Testament that misunderstood everything, Jesus was extremely harsh because they were misrepresenting him. So this is what we find in chapter 23. And this is the best example that I could show you where this is what Jesus had to deal with. He's come to tell people that God loves you, wants to be in relationship with you, there's purpose and meaning for your life, and and he's fighting against the religious teachers of the day who are saying something completely opposite. So Jesus finally confronts, or or I shouldn't say finally, in his sovereignty, confronts them and he says this, chapter 23, I'm going to read the whole thing, so bear with me for a few minutes here. And then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Real quick side note. All that means is they had these little boxes that had scripture passages that they memorized that they knew well, and they had them here on their uh, arms, and they actually had them on their head, and they, it's like they went like this and went, here's what it says. Right? It's very condescending, very judgmental, very I'm superior to you. So that's what he's saying. Uh, they loved the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. No, uh, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, pay attention to this one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves about as harsh as it gets. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple, sorry, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent, Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not, would, sorry, and you would not See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now again, there's lots we could say in there, but I think you get the point. As Jesus is saying, you who claim to follow the law, you don't even understand the law. You don't even understand who God is. So how can you make other people do what you do? And that's why he says at the beginning, right? So they, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, whenever they're reading the law, listen to them because that's the word of God and it's true. But as soon as they go out and they act, don't do anything that they do because they don't practice what they preach. Jesus is so, so direct. In verse 23, he mentions this, and I think this is key for it. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What is he saying? You got to look at the whole of Scripture. You can't just pick part of it and say, I like this part. This is who I'm going to be. I'm going to focus on this area only. No, if you're going to teach people, if you're going to show them who Jesus is, if you're going to claim that you have a relationship with God, then you better understand what's written in the Bible. Now, don't hear me saying that means you have to be a completely understanding of every little word that's in it. But you need to know who you're representing. You need to know who you are an ambassador for. And if you don't, then maybe you've got to go back to the word. Not maybe. You need to go back to the word then. We need to study it and see who is this Jesus? Who are we representing to others? Again, if I walk up to somebody in the hospital that's dying of cancer, I look at them and I say, God has told me you will be well tomorrow. And I leave and they don't get well. What do they think? Well, God lied to me. God didn't lie. God never said that. I did. So we need to be so, so careful how we talk about what God thinks and who God is, what he is like. 
I don't know when somebody's dying of cancer, I don't know that God is going to heal them or not. I know that he is capable. But I know very difficultly that sometimes he doesn't. And I don't know why. I don't have answers to those questions. And so what I do know is I remind them that God is with you through this. And that even in the midst of your pain and your suffering and your hurt, and, and so for those dealing with residential school system things, I don't understand any of your hurt and suffering, but God does. And he's still walking with you through that. And he will not abandon you. He's promised you he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He has promised you that he loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you. Those are the things that we know and that's where I'm going to stand and I'm going to stand firm. The other things that I don't know, the details of how all that looks and how it works out sometimes, why would I focus there? Why would I go up to somebody and claim that God said something that he's never said? It can be so, so very dangerous. So when we enter into conversation, about this. This is this I think this is the way in which we approach it. Admit this happened and it shouldn't have. The Bible is shows a God of, who's a God of justice and that was not just. It was wrong. Admit that. Apologize that on behalf of others who claim to do things in the name of Jesus clearly according to what the Bible says they did not act on his behalf they only claimed to. And don't try and play the blame game. Don't try and cop. Are you directly responsible? Did you have any action in that? Of course not. But you're still a person. And people have done awful things. And we can't just say, well, that was that person, that was that person. I'm innocent of all those things. What we need to show them is that we understand that according to what Scripture says, we desperately need Jesus. Just like anybody else. And that daily I need to go to him and I need to confess the, the, inadequacies, the inadequacies in my own heart and ask that the Holy Spirit would be present and that I would listen to him and I would live in the power that he gives me. And then we need to confess that sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we act selfishly. Sometimes we do things that are wrong. Sometimes we listen to our own sin nature way more than we listen to God. And we need to apologize for those things. So when somebody says, I want nothing to do with that God because look what he did, don't just try and give answers right away. Listen. Hurt with. Acknowledge that what was done to them was wrong. And if it was done in the name of Jesus, we need to grieve that. And then we can point them to scripture. Then we show them that there is a God who loves them and we remind them that only, the only thing that matters is what's written in this book. Not what I think, not what somebody else thinks, not what somebody says on behalf of. And we can use examples like I do not have the authority to speak on behalf of all whatever group of people. But God does have the authority to speak on behalf of himself because he's revealed himself to us. This is why we will always say this book, this is where we find authority. This is where we will go. Does it answer the questions? Not really. It gives us a framework of how to process, of how to move forward. Remember, we looked at Job a few weeks ago. Job doesn't get any answers for what his complaints are, but he recognizes that there's a God in control. So the same for us. Let's not try and pretend like we have answers to every very difficult problem. 
but let's point them to the God of Scripture who can help us down that process, who can help us reconcile, at least in part, on this side of eternity, some of these things that have happened. And then we can know for certainty that one day all wrongs will be righted, that we will be able to be with God in eternity where there will be no sin. Praise the Lord that we look forward to that day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And God, I want to pray for all of our indigenous brothers and sisters across specifically our country who are going through difficulties that none of us understand. The hurt and the pain that they are going through is something that we cannot relate to. And so God, I pray that you would create in us empathy, sympathy, that we would care for them, that we would hurt with them, that we would show them that you love them and that we love them. God, we, are in, we as people are arrogant. And I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would not be condescending and judgmental towards other people. That we wouldn't try and just correct everything about how they live, what they do, or how they think, but that we would simply love them and point them to you. It is only in the power of your Holy Spirit that you can mold each one of us into the way in which you have created us to be in the first place. So God, I pray we would point people there. God, I pray that we would be your ambassadors, that we would represent you well. That we would read scripture so that we understand who you are and how to represent you to the nations. And would you give us great amounts of humility that we would not try and speak on your behalf that which you have not spoken. Would we not justify things that have been done? And would we be, would we be people who long to see justice? God, would you work in our hearts? Would you give us a deep care for each one who is hurting because you have created them. They are made in your image and you love them desperately. And as we have read this morning in 1 John, we cannot hate our brother and say we love you. So may we love everyone that you have put in our path this week. Everyone that stands in front of us, would we love and would we represent you well. God, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the purpose and the mission that you have given us to be your ambassadors. Help us to do that well. Amen. Thank you for joining us again. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Uh, there, are there snacks? Do we have a snack person? There may or may not be snacks. If you walk over there and there's snacks, that's good. If you don't, there's coffee. And we look forward to just chatting and, and getting to know you. Hope you have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. Good news for the shame. There is good news for the world who 
He's on the 